Hey, so my guest today, David Yarrow, is one of the world's best-selling fine art photographers. He's spent the last decade documenting the natural world from really different perspectives, and his distinctive, evocative, and absolutely immersive photography of life on Earth, it's earned him a massive following amongst art collectors as a relevant artist of his generation. His limited edition works regularly fetch record bids at auction houses like Sotheby's, He's also a passionate philanthropist and conservationist, holds multiple ambassadorships, including those for Wild Ark, Nikon, Land Rover, and UBS, and has donated millions to wildlife and sustainability causes. But here's the thing. This almost never happened. None of it. David's career had a bit of a false start. When on a break from university at a pretty young age, he talked his way into a World Cup soccer match and captured this now legendary image of the iconic soccer star Maradona. That could have launched a tremendous career, but instead of embracing a career in photojournalism, he went back into finance, where he ended up spending decades building a big business, a big career, a big reputation, until a series of experiences led him to just shut it all down and walk away from it all and step back into this love of photography and image making and storytelling that just never left him, but doing it in a profoundly different way than he had ever thought about doing it earlier in his life. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important 
So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. So I'm excited to dive in with you. I want to take a little bit of a step back in time because you have this fascinating history sort of moving between photography from the earliest days and finance back to photography. And then I kind of want to close the loop later in our conversation because there's some really fascinating intersections between those two worlds happening right now. But back in the day, coming up in Glasgow, um, dad, I guess the whole dad's whole side of the family, um, industrialist shipbuilding. And I was actually curious because you know, it's the type of thing where very often the assumption is the kids are going into the family business. But looking at your family business, it also seems like the company was nationalized when you were 10, 11, 12 years old, effectively taking it out of the family's ownership. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, was there an expectation when you were younger that this would be your future? And did that shift around that time? I think nepotism uh, is dangerous. I think you have to be doubly good to succeed or go into a family business because it begs so many questions from other people that don't have a blood link. Uh, I think that possibility was really removed because shipbuilding was dying. Shipbuilding in the Clyde that used to be used to be the shipbuilding center of the world, but because of Far Eastern competition in particular was South Korea. Uh, and to an extent, better union practices in places like Bremen and Germany, that the Clyde, which once had 65 shipyards um, around the time of the, probably just after the Second World War, merchant shipbuilding was, was declining very quickly because they just couldn't compete from a labor cost side with, with South Korea. Um, uh, the Yarra business was all about building military ships, so working with the Royal Navy. And that, and I guess because it was a military yard, there was a degree of intellectual property that allowed it to transcend merchant shipbuilding. You weren't going to get the British Navy uh, having their ships built in, in West Germany or South Korea. So that the relationship with the Admiralty uh, always fostered some long longevity. Um, but notwithstanding that, the government, the British government nationalized all shipyards in 1977 and didn't differentiate between profitable naval yards and unprofitable merchant yards. It was du during the, the, the days of what was called the Red Clyde, um, i.e. quite a socialist Clyde. And it was done primarily to uh, protect the workforce. And they always used to say in Glasgow that for one person employed on the river, there were three people employed servicing the river. So 100,000 people working on the river rapidly became total employment of 400,000. So I look back now with my children being 18 and 20, and I don't think when I was 10 to 15, you're not at a, your emotional intelligence is not strong enough to say, Dad, your job must be shit. But I think his job was shit because you had a very aggressive trade unions. And in Glasgow also, Glasgow's a city a bit like Belfast and Liverpool where 
it's 50% Protestant, 50% Catholic. And the unions prevented any Catholics from working in the yard in the very same way that the unions in the mines prevented any Protestants working in the yards, uh, in the mines. It sounds so anachronistic now, but that's the way that Glasgow was and still is. It is a very sectarian place. So you had another layer of issues over and above lack of orders, uh, rising wage costs, militant trade unions. But the Yarrow's Yard still survives, and it's one of, I think, two shipyards left on, on the Clyde. So it's something I'm very proud of, but the family connection has, has long since gone. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting to have the lens from both the inside out and the outside in in the context of history, sort of looking at all yeah. of that. Um, photography touches down in your life fairly early, it sounds like. You end up Edinburgh U, and I guess it was while you were still in university um, in 86 where you know, there's this sort of a moment where you touch down in Mexico and take this shot, which becomes an iconic shot of uh, Maradona. When you were doing that, do I have the timing right that you were actually still in school when that was happening? Yeah, still at university. Our exams finished early. And the the day that my fi- I did my final business studies exam, I, I flew to, to Mexico City that, that evening. And uh, most of my friends were getting drunk and doing things that you do when your university or college finals finish. And the next day I was in Mexico. I didn't have a clue. Uh, and I, I, my accreditation was from a magazine that was so marginal. <laughs> um, but it allowed me the chance of a meeting with FIFA in Mexico City to see if I could get accreditation. I could never have done that now. And, but in 1986, you could get, you could wing it. And uh, I just couldn't believe that they were accrediting me, which meant that I could get any camera I wanted from Nikon or Canon, who were sponsoring the World Cup, and also sit on the touchline of any game I wanted to go to. I was a student, though, so I was staying in a hotel that cost about $5 a night. <laughs> And traveling to these games on buses with, you know, that probably cost a dollar with live chicken in the back of the bus. And I'm not being self-deprecating. And I've said it before that I really struggled uh, in the games. I I struggled because I I wasn't experienced enough, maybe a bit overawed. It was in the days before cameras allowed you to do autofocus. So if you had a player, an athlete running towards you, you had to move the focusing on the camera, a thing called follow focus, to try and keep the player in focus. Not easy and it's something that I wasn't very good at. Also, because a lot of the games were shot uh, for European TV, it meant that the games were shot during the middle of the day. And if you've got a high sun, it's not easy to photograph, particularly if you're photographing an African team or a South American team, uh, to get the detail in the faces and I, I, I got one or two decent shots. And the other thing was, uh, when I was watching Scotland, I was really just a fan with a camera. I was sort of cheering on every moment rather than taking pictures. But Scotland are crap, so we, we got sent home fairly early. Um, and there was my stroke of luck, because if you were working for a Scottish newspaper, you went home with the team. You, there was no way the Scottish photographers on a salary and expenses were going to be able to kept on the scottish newspapers would just get their their photographs from 
syndicated photographs. And FIFA had this rule that if you had an affiliation from one of the countries that had qualified for the tournament, you were allowed, one of those were allowed on the pitch at the final. And I was the only Scot left, so I, I couldn't quite believe it when I was given a pitch, a, a pitch pass for the World Cup final. And uh, I remember turning up at the Aztec at six in the morning because I couldn't really sleep and the game was at 12 o'clock. And I bribed a Mexican guard with some whiskey. And he allowed me to go from one end of the um, pitch to the other. You could hear a pin drop. It's a massive stadium, 120,000 people. And I could see my footprints in the dew and the grass behind me. And I had, a, I guess it was a, an epiphany in a way that I thought this is going to be a, a big day in my life. And um, I got lucky. I got lucky twice in the final. Um, I think still then I was too young to recognize uh, that I got a big picture. Um, you know, the lens, the lens that I used for that picture was probably cost me about $50. <laughs> um, there was a story, there's a great story that in the quarterfinal that um, uh, it was the hand of God where Maradona punched the ball into the net. And the only person that got that moment where the ball was touching Maradona's hand was a Mexican photographer who had an even crappier camera than me. I think it was one of these ones where you clicked and you winded it on. And an agency, I think the next day, negotiated terms with that Mexican photographer to buy that image off him. I think the, I think I believe the number was thirty or forty thousand dollars, which was for them for a Mexican. In eighty six, especially, <laughs> it's a big ticket. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I look back at it now, and uh, when he died. Ironically, I was in, in, in Mexico when he died and um, my picture again came up everywhere. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a special moment and you could look at it for a long time. And I was lucky. I just got, I, I was more nimble than I am now and I managed to get very close to him. And uh, he got on the shoulder of a teammate and his eyes looked right at me. And the whole thing is, there's a sort of biblical sym symmetry to the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly powerful. Um, you, you brought up two kind of fascinating notions, though, when you were sharing the story, which is the, the notion of focus, you know, because especially then, like you were saying, you know, you're sitting there with a ring trying to dial in the focus the whole time when someone's yeah. moving. And so to capture that one shot, it's like you have one chance, and we're talking film also, so you can't just hit a button and rattle off a whole bunch of digits into an SD card you know, you've got a limited amount of capacity in this thing you're holding in your hand. So it's just an entirely different constraint, you know, creatively. Oh, I think uh, working with uh, changing films, because even then the motor drives were, were able to do, I think, five or six frames a second. So that meant that if you had your finger down, you would have to change your film you conceivably after six seconds, um, which you can't do in the in the melee of, you know, one of the great moments in sport. You have to because if you have to change your film in that sort of chaotic situation, you're yeah. done. So there were tricks of the trade now that, sorry, then that people that are now in the younger ages of their photographic career, they have it much much easier. We had to, it was a tactical game in terms of knowing 
if you have 36 images, you better use them. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wonder what the effect is, even if it's subconscious on the way that you train your eye and the way that you choose, you know, on, on how intentional you are when you actually put your finger on the trigger. I think uh, whether it be subconsciously or not, I take far less pictures than other people when I'm in the field. And I sometimes, I don't really do wildlife photography so much these days, but you would sometimes go to the, uh, the migration of crossing a river in Kenya or Tanzania, and you'd hear these guys with their finger on the motor drive, and they're, they're probably taking a thousand pictures. And I'd, I've never done that. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's the wrong thing to do, but in the same way that brevity is the soul of wit in writing, I think in photography, choose your moment to press the trigger. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because if you can hold your finger down and grab a thousand images in a remarkably short amount of time and then pick the one or two that look really stunning, is that, how do you define that in terms of craft, in terms of art versus um, more the way you do it or more the way that, you know, it, it was done more often with film? Like, is it, is it simply about like, what does that final one or two image look like? And do you judge everything based on that? Or is it more about the, the craft and the process? I think it's important for me never to be dictatorial as to what the right thing to do is for other people, because that is presumptuous. Uh, it is what suits that individual. What suits me is that less is more. And remember that a camera is just a conduit. It's a piece of metal between your eye and what's in front of your eye. And if you have the shutter down for one minute, that relationship is lost by, almost by definition. I remember going to Africa not too long ago on a trip and I came back and I'd taken 15 photographs the whole time uh, because there wasn't anything to photograph. And there's a well-known American photographer, I think he worked for Nat Geo, called Jim Richardson. And he, he said, if you want to be a better photographer, put more interesting stuff in front of the camera. And it's such a kind of platitude, but it's so on the money and right. And it is important not to feel the need to photograph. If you go to a restaurant and the restaurant is an expensive restaurant and they give you, as they tend to in America, give you an enormous bowl of pasta for your main course and they're going to charge you $39.99, you shouldn't feel the need to finish it. You can you could have as much of that pasta as you want, but don't finish it if, you don't, if you're not hungry. In the same way, I only tend to press the trigger when there's a reason to do it. Because sometimes if you're... If your default position is just to go on and on, you're going to miss the one moment. And I, I've got a few examples of that um, over my time where it's sometimes just a question of waiting and looking, re removing the camera from your eye and just watching. Um, and I guess part of that might, might well be from the days of film where you had to be economic and selective. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if sometimes we have those imprints and they just kind of stay with us, even though the actual physical constraint is no longer there. You know, it's like, 
the age old story of, you know, the person who puts the roast in the oven and always cuts the two ends off before they put it in. And finally, like the kid asked the mom, why do you do that? It was because, you know, like that person's mother, you know, like back in the day, couldn't afford a large enough oven. So they'd have to cut the two ends off to fit it in. Yeah. And yet that just becomes the tradition that carries on. Um, yeah. you know, and it's never really questioned. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with 
the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You have an interesting moment because, you know, you, you're, you're down in Mexico. You catch this early image. You clearly have the bug. You come back. And then when you decide, I'm going to, I'm going to step out into the world, of, you know, and figure out how to make my bones, you, you have a choice to make. You know, the choice is effectively between the world of finance, um, which, you know, becomes one opportunity for you and the world of image making. And you choose finance, but it doesn't seem like it was a clean choice. No, it, it wasn't. Uh, I think you have to go back to 1988 when I made that decision. I, I'd done the Olympics. I'd, I'd covered the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in, in Calgary. And I did that for what is now called Getty Images. And that was I was so excited to be there. But there were a lot of photographers there. And the Blue Ribbon event was the men's downhill course. And I wasn't strong enough to be given the pitch on the course. I was down where the skiers came right. in. They, they spun around and they looked at their time. And the big skiers in those days were all Swiss. There was a guy called Perman Zubringen and Peter Muller. They were the kind of, they were the big stars of the men's downhill. And I had a fantastic time, but I was looking around for happy people in the press corps with the cameras, people that uh, could be role models for me maybe, and who 20 years older than me seem to have got a life that I aspired to have. And I met some very nice people, some of whom are great friends now, and, and, but I didn't necessarily aspire to want to have the life that they were, they were having. And it struck me that their jobs were very much Fleet Street being at the right place at the right time, recording the moment, and their ability to get work that other people hadn't got, even then, and cameras have improved an awful lot, was, was marginal. So I was slightly disillusioned with that, um, that I didn't see, they were all much better than me, but I didn't see anyone that I, I said, I think it's good to have heroes. I didn't see many people that said, you're 45, you've got your life really sorted, and also you're making a lot of money. Now, I know that might sound one-dimensional, but it coincided with Oliver Stone's film Wall Street, where it seemed to me that Bud Fox, Gordon Gecko were making a lot of money. And that was the era where everyone wanted to be Michael Lewis and play Lars Poker on the floor of Salomon Brothers or whatever. And because I got an economics degree, and working with people in Edinburgh that were also doing that, everyone was joining Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Salomon Brothers. So it seemed a bit of an outlier for me to go and do something that was so left field. Uh, there was a bit of parental pressure as well, I guess, but I think that's unfair on, on maybe on, on my dad who's passed. It was largely my decision because all my friends were doing it. And it seemed like this sort of preordained path. And I don't regret it. I don't regret that decision at all. I, I met some extraordinary people. And um, I remember going into a dealing room of 500 people in London 
and you go to ground zero very quickly. You're taught humility, you, you work hard, you learn from the ground up, and you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Um, I didn't put my cameras away. And of course, I had nothing to really talk about in investment banking because I didn't know what I was doing. So I'd, I'd continue to show everyone my picture of Maradona. But I did let the cameras gather dust because a bit like clearly the, the, the topic du jour in investment banking is this survey of first years at, first years at Goldman, Goldman Sachs that are working 95 hours a week. I wasn't quite working 95 hours a week, but I was working hard enough that you really any hobbies are thrown out the door fairly, fairly early on. So you then get on the hamster wheel. And once you're on that hamster wheel, it's very difficult to get off it. Um, so I would go to sport events as a spectator and I'd wave at my old mates on the pitch that, uh, you know, were <laughs> photographing it and they'd laugh at me. And yeah, there was the expression in the UK in the eighties, the acronym yuppie, which mm, meant, you know, man. you're a city banker and they would go, there's that effing yuppie up in the, up in the stand. So, um, yeah, I went from being on the pitch to watching from the stands. Yeah. I mean, that story actually, I think resonates strongly with me. I was the artist as a kid and then entrepreneur as an, and an artist, and I ended up in law school and, th and then I ended up at the SEC and then I ended up in a, you know, like one of the giant firms in New York, um, in securities law. And, um, you know, th there, it, it gets really sexy really quickly, the money that's being thrown at you and the sense of power and prestige and status, you know, and everyone else yeah, around we you is doing it. It's very hard to say no to that. And then finally extract yourself is a, is a whole different proposition. Yeah. Well, you're even worse than me then. You went from an artist to be a whistleblower. <laughs> I, I, know, I, went, I went from being an artist to a, a trader and a thief. You went to be a, a whistleblower. <laughs> but then I flipped sides and I was representing the people doing the deal. So I, I had a full, a full spectrum experience. Um, you know, you end up staying in the game for, for a, a pretty decent amount of time. I think you're at NatWest for eight years, 95-ish, you launch your own fund. Um, you know, what's happening in the background, you're building a life and you're building a family around the assumption that this is going to be, you know, like what things look like. 9-11 happens and you are observant, maybe prescient in a way that so many others weren't, maybe just at a particular spot at a particular moment in time. And you make a call that changes a lot of things for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I look back on it and I think I was lucky because I focused on European equities and UK equities. And uh, the time the first plane went in, of course, the American market hadn't opened. But London was, it was lunchtime in London. I was in America. And... Um, the, the markets were weak anyway because the autumn's never a good time for stock markets, never was in those days. And so, and I, I was always, uh, I lived under the dictum if you're going to panic, panic early. Uh, I think that was a Warren Buffett saying. And um, when, um, when the first plane went in, I was watching CNBC, like, of course, so many people, Mark Holmes was the anchor man. And uh, I remember when the, you saw the, the whole, um, when they first got the chance to look at the hole, and I've looked back when he, when Mark Holm, when he passed, they played his commentary, which was very good in between those twenty minutes. And um, I just decided that 
from a risk perspective, let's just sell everything. And we, I made that decision. It wasn't like it was a big committee thing to do. I had one other partner and uh, I forget what the trading firm was, whether it be Morgan Stanley or UBS, but we were able to, to exit. I'd like to make it very clear that we didn't profiteer from it. We just removed the possibility of our clients losing money from it. And so when the second plane went in, of course, we all knew what was going on. And then the, the world markets fell, what, 25%. And in that ex during that time, we had no exposure. And then I think it was the following Friday, so 10 days afterwards, we thought we'd just gently nibble back in. And yeah, I, I, I'd be the first to say, I, I think I was, I'd give myself a six and a half, seven out of 10 as a hedge fund manager. It wouldn't be any harder than that. I think I, I was conservative. I was steady. I was ethical. I worked hard. I cared for the investors. And I always worried about not making sure we didn't lose the money. Um, so we ended up making 6% in that month. And, and, then, and then, of course, the, the, the whole TMT bubble unwound fairly aggressively. And, and uh, we were the right side of that. I, was in a, I knew my accounting and I didn't like some of the fairly aggressive accounting that was going on. So we went from being a small firm to not quite such a small firm and employing an, an awful lot of people. And it took its toll. It was not something that I, I ever thought would happen, that we would be running, going from running money for your friends and family to the government of Singapore and teachers in Ontario and farming in Montreal and these massive funds around the world. I was too young. I wasn't really well equipped for it. And people looked, looked at me and thought, well, Davey's having a good time. I wasn't. I was, uh, it was incredibly stressful. And uh, I was also aware of the fact that you really are only as good as your last month's trading and you can go from being a hero to a zero very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, um, it's a bit of a brutal business from the outside looking in. I think a lot of folks say, well, that is, he hit it. You know, it's the ultimate aspiration. You know, like everyone wants to build this giant business with a you know, like ton of money under management and yet the stress. And I think some people are, are wired in a way where somehow they can kind of wake up in the morning and, and be okay with that and roll with it. But a lot of people are not. And I think if you're the type of person also who genuinely feels beholden to doing right to others and you kind of start to get the sense that you're way less in control than you think you are, even if you're doing all the right things, it can be a, a brutal, just psychological burden to sort of be holding on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and um, those were the days where, what was my skill set? If I had a skill set, it was that there were still the opportunities to arbitrage information. So you could leverage the gap between perception and reality, if you knew your companies well. Those days have gone. What, what, what effectively I was doing is now illegal because I would, and that's the whole irony of the premise of being a stockbroker or a fund manager now in, in equities, is people say, what is your unique selling point? But if they reply information, they go, well, go straight to prison. If that is your unique selling point is information, that's the wrong answer. Whereas in 1998, it was the right answer. 
it just shows how much has changed in 25 years. My strength was I'd get to know company management very well, take them out for dinner, find out how business was, give them a bottle of wine, and um, hopefully charm them into, at the margin, even if it was just body language, having a better feel of how their year was progressing versus the market, whether that be good or bad. You can't do that now. That's illegal. Yeah. I mean, it's it, as you're building all of this in the background um, and the world is changing, the market is changing. And as you said, you were really struggling. You know, this was something where it was taking a toll on you, on your life, on your relationships, uh, on your well-being. Then I guess it was 08 where I think Madoff happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, right? Because you weren't him. But, you know, and a lot of people in the markets know this, that the same core group of investors tend to spread money across a whole bunch of different people they perceive as sort of like a similar level, a similar way. So when that happens, it sounds like so many people became skittish about where they had money that they just started redeeming. And it sounds like in the blink of an eye, you went from managing a, a very large amount of money to a fraction of that because everyone was just like, can I have my money back, please? <laughs> yeah, I was the proverbial ATM. Because when I set the fund up, there weren't many of these funds knocking around. So I wrote in the prospectus, if you want your money back, you can have it back in a week. Because the people that were giving me money were my mum, <laughs> people like that. So, um, And I never changed it. I, I was never one for changing the rules. So... I don't, I didn't really, I knew who some of the feeder funds for made of were like Fairfield Greenwich and stuff like that. But yeah, it's funny because when, when Lehman went down on that Monday, I was very cautious on the Scottish banks that had somehow or other 300 years of, of a culture of prudence had regressed into a culture of sales almost in a year or two. And their, their, their balance sheets were, were way overextended. So we were short that whole area, but uh, and coming into December, we'd only lost three or four percent of people's money. And by the way, I thought we could have done better than given how bearish we were on the banks. But um, the tail of our portfolio hurt us in the final two or three weeks of the year. And of course, if you get a wave of redemptions, you have to sell to pay for the waves of redemptions. And uh, so it really kind of, whilst I we recovered and managed to have some good years after that. It was the moment in time where I said to myself, you know, I was, I was, um, um, at that stage, I, I was 40, 41, 42 years old and my life had blown up. My marriage had blown up. My business had blown up and I didn't think I'd done an awful lot wrong really, but, and I don't want to play the victim at all. Um, because I must have done something's wrong. Um, but I felt that it was now time to try and take control of my life and try and do things where I'm not going to be so hostage to exogenous variables, to don't be hostage to things beyond your control. Of course, saying that is so stupid in 2021 after a year of the pandemic where we've all been hostage to things beyond our control. But I think that's a that's more of a complete one-off. Whereas what happened with the banking crisis and Lehman and subprime 
not everyone was exposed to it. You could, there were ways where you, you didn't necessarily need to be exposed to it. So, I mean, you hit this moment where it's almost like everything, all the structures, all the, the pillars in your life kind of fall apart simultaneously. I'm curious, you know, it's, so you reach this moment of reckoning where it's sort of like, okay, so what now, where do I go from here? I'm a 40 something year old guy who has, you know, done a lot of really interesting, cool, good things, but also has like a little bit of a trail of ashes behind me right now, but I have a lot of years left ahead of me. How do you make the decision that says, okay, whatever sunk costs I have, whatever experience I have, whatever relationships I have from a couple of decades in this particular world now, I'm going to step back into that thing that lit me up in my late teens and early 20s and see what happens there. Or, or was that even the thing? Or was that more of like a retreat and a coping mechanism during that particular window? After 2008, there was a lot of hate directed towards bankers understandably. And when I left banking, and I look back now at some of my friends, a lot of friends within the industry, it is an industry, I think, that is peopled on the investment banking side by a collective that has a lot of common sense and plurality of skill sets, work ethic, manners in a lot of cases. But of course, it's, as a collective, it's been vilified. One of the central things about investment banking is that most people that have done well in it have done a lot of research. Most people start off as analysts researching an industry in the same way that you're, that people are writing 500-page notes on cryptocurrency now, and that's an important job. I would be writing 200-page notes on some parts of the retail industry. So it wasn't such a big gap to bridge from looking at certain sectors in the market, I used to specialize a little bit in oil and gas services, to starting off with a blank sheet of paper and saying, I'm going to become a scholar on the history of photography, on the history of commercial photography. And that's effectively what I did. I came home in the evenings, fairly miserable, because if your fund's not doing well, what are you going to do in the evening? Uh, clients don't want to see you. Future clients certainly don't want to see you. You're going to look at your stocks that are not performing for you again. That's going to make you fairly miserable. So I, I um, started to work every night on on where I thought there was a gap in the commercial photography market. And I wrote a paper which didn't make me very popular in some parts of the photography industry. It was a bit like... You know, remember in, in, in Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise writes his piece about how sports management agents should look after, you know, less sports stars and give them more personal attention. It was his, uh, it was his think piece. And he put it, you remember, he, got, he put it in everyone's cubbyhole and then he got fired 48 hours later in the restaurant. I kind of did the same, um, except everyone read Tom Cruise's piece, whereas no one really <laughs> read mine other than a few people that wondered what I was up to. And... My conclusion to the piece was that the only way really to make money from photography on the longer term scale was if you could elevate your photography to a place where it would be considered art and where you could get to a position in the marketplace where you, your 
brand integrity was strong enough that it would be self-propagating and people would pay high prices for your art. And I wrote that paper about, I probably started off writing about 10, 11 years ago, the central premise of it. And I tweaked it and used a lot of examples. I became kind of encyclopedic on, on, on the last 30, 40 years of, of, of photography. And I worried because I've got a lot of mates who are sports photographers and you, you look at, just look at sports illustrated now as a magazine and compare it to 25 years ago. It's probably three times as thick 25 yeah. years ago. And the editorial staff was probably three times bigger than yeah. that now, then than it is now. And that's of course, a combination of our proliferation of TV channels, streaming, our thirst for immediacy. Why would you want to buy a magazine four days after a big event? You can get everything you need the following morning. And I sympathized a lot with the, the, the extraordinary talented people within that industry and in Fleet Street. But I couldn't see it in an era where there was already too much content as to how that was going to change, how it was going to get better. And, and Getty Images, which is a you know, probably the biggest provider of stock photographs in the world, it very nearly went bust, partly because it was saddled with too much private equity uh, debt. But I think the family eventually had to take it over from Carlisle, Carlisle Partners, I think, in Philly. And I'm not, it's not a criticism of them at all. It is, it's an insight into the world where the price per content's fallen right. and fallen. So, but writing a paper about how to achieve this and doing it <laughs> are two totally separate things. It wasn't a prescription for my career path. It was a suggestion as to how someone could do it. The notion that I could do it was always a far bigger challenge than writing the paper itself. I don't think the paper really said anything that was too contentious to me. And it was whether I had the ability, which then I didn't, to be able to take that roadmap. Uh, and from 2012-13 to now, the, there's been some big blockades on the road and there will be many more, I'm sure, going forward. But it's funny when I, I think I could tell you a story, it's just quite a funny story. Um, a week ago, I was, um, she won't mind this, I was up in a place called the Yellowstone Club where you get an awful lot of these multi-billionaires. And I was having a conversation, sitting at the table, discussing with Paris Hilton how I was going to work with her in the, the following week. And I'd never met her before. She, um, she was very mannered, charming, polite, uh, wearing heavy glasses so perhaps people couldn't recognize her. And all around the table, there were her fiance and then very famous people that would be in the Wall Street Journal on a regular basis. And of course, people out of manners were very reluctant to come up and say hello. And then someone about 20 minutes into our meeting came over to our table and I thought, oh, here we go. And then looked at me and said, you're David Yarrow. <laughs> and I thought, I can't believe that's happened. <laughs> you're like, I didn't think I was going to be the one people to be elected. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> but that's been a long road. And um, 
and it's not uh we've we've got i've got a lot to do i'm i'm still i think early early in its um early in the journey and my best pictures are ahead of me but we've got to a position where it is self propagating because rightly or wrongly um we have a a distribution model with our galleries around the world or the galleries that represent us to be able to work with very strong people because we can raise a lot of money for charity with them or in collaboration with them and so things come easier for us now than of course than they did in the beginning where it was very tough yeah Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I mean, what's fascinating to me also is that when you write that paper and, and you finish it, like you said, you'd become pretty encyclopedic on the history and also said, okay, this is my theory of, of how somebody would succeed in this world in a sustainable way. And as you shared, you, you also knew that you weren't that person at that moment in time. Clearly something inside of you said, but I think I might be able to be. 
you know, enough, enough to effectively say, I'm going all in on this to see what I can make happen. There is no doubt in my mind that the most important factor in being able to have built the business is not my talent. That would be incredibly arrogant to say that. There are so many talented photographers around. I think uh, I know what I'm doing and I've made enough mistakes that by learning how to fail, you learn how to get it right. The biggest factor, and this might surprise you, is actually out of my pain of my marriage not working, I decided I wasn't going to get remarried. And I've got my kids. I'm full of admiration of people that can turn a complicated life into an even more complicated life by getting married again, having more children and different, you know, this modern family. I wasn't strong enough emotionally to be able to do that. And that, with my kids away at school um, or university now, allowed me not to necessarily be selfish, but single-minded. Because in 2019, I think I took 235 flights in 2019. If I was married, she'd have gone. There's no way anyone's going to put up with that. And yes, you do get husband and wife relationships where they go together as a team. But I would imagine that tests even the best relationships. So the fact that I was able to just say, this is what I'm going my road to redemption was one of being on the road. A lot of people that I speak to are photography should be very collegiate. I talk to a lot of photographers and they, they say, David, I don't compete against anyone. It's not about competition. The first question I ask someone who wants to embark on what I've done is it's not about cameras. I ask them, tell me about home. Tell me about your home, home life. Tell me about your family. Because if you're going to do this, you're going to be on the road. Yeah, I mean, it's part of the the bargain, at least to shoot the way that you chose to shoot. I and mean, part of my curiosity is like, clearly you were running towards something. You saw this thing out there saying, this is what I'm working to try and make happen. Did you have any sense that you were simultaneously running from something? Just before I answer that, you're on the road for two reasons. You're on the road to capture new content. And then equally importantly, you're on the road to sell that new content. You can't, I'm in Dallas right now, where in a normal year, we'd have a thousand people come to the opening. I have to be there. I have to go and work that market. So you, have, you put your cameras away. In a year, I will spend more time marketing than I will taking pictures. A bit, a bit more. Uh, was I was I on the road? Um, I think I'm my own biggest critic. I think that I got to a stage where I didn't like myself very much. And uh, if you're going to go for it, you've got to go for it. You've got to attack. I think you have to give it absolutely everything. An observation I'd make is that a lot of photographers have got a better balance in their life than I have. And I take my hat off to the fact that they've prioritized other things. I wish perhaps that I'd had a better balance in my life 
but I'm happy where I am now. And uh, um, my kids are love them to bits, and I've got a lovely partner in my life. And sometimes you've got to be a fatalist, and it's just it's just kind of the way it's, things have worked out. Yeah. The over that this intervening time, this last decade or so, like you said, you have you have built both the craft, you've put in the time and the work, and built the you know, the, the scaffolding, the structure, the people, the systems to be able to actually create fantastic art and also, you know, a strong, sustainable living out of this. And not that it's set it and forget it. Like you just said, you're in a hotel in Dallas right now because you you have to be consistently out there, both shooting and simultaneously marketing and selling. Um, and you have also in your work, extraordinary you, uh, images that maybe you're not going to use this language, but that I would call iconic images, images like mankind, where, you know, you're in South Sudan in a Dinka cattle camp, you know, high on a ladder, taking a shot that you would then bring back and effectively really change not just the trajectory of your career, but that image is so extraordinary. You can look at that image, you know, and just stand in front of it, I feel, for an indefinite amount of time and keep seeing more and more and more. And there's something that it does to you. When you think of the lengths that you have gone to, that you do go to and that you will go to, to capture images like that, what are the costs that you weigh when making those decisions to do that? Um, And are you always comfortable with those decisions and those costs? My hero is Steven Spielberg. And, uh, I've got a couple of under, underneath them, but all my heroes are filmmakers: Scorsese and Ridley Scott, Spielberg, probably my. And I'm clearly that's not a particularly contentious hero; it's a kind of mainstream hero to have. Uh, Spielberg was interviewed about a few years ago, and he said his biggest fear. And this is a man that came to our attention through Jaws, and then Close Encounters, and E.T., Indiana Jones, Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List. Jurassic Park, the world goes on and on and on. He said his biggest fear was boring people. I mean, if there's anyone that's earned the right not to have that fear, it's Steven Spielberg. I have that fear. My my biggest fear is being mundane uh, because we are the most content-spot generation ever to have lived. So it is very easy to take a lame photograph. Uh, So I spend an awful lot of time we, as a team, spend a lot of time analyzing two things. Number one, is it authentic? Is it creative? And I was with a good mentor the other day who built up Victoria's Secret into until obviously they struggled with the, the culture we have now. Um, his saying was, it's not creative if it doesn't sell. And I think that's very true. Um, creativity has to be coupled with commerciality. So we have two filters. We have a a filter of authenticity, creativity, and then we have a filter of commerciality. So if you throw 100 ideas into a pot, I I think that the the creativity side and and the ability to be authentic is going to knock out 90% of those ideas. You've then got 10 ideas left. I think the commerciality one will knock out a lot of those 10 remaining ideas. Let me give you an example. I, you could, I could turn around and say, you know, I'm sure in the sewers of Dallas right now there's some very big rats. So I could go and photograph the rats in the sewers of Dallas. 
And people say, well, that's very plaudible because no one's done that before. And it's going to be, from a technical perspective, it's going to be very challenging. But who wants to put a picture of a rat in a sewer on their wall? So what's the point? We have a, our database, and I was showing this to someone the other day, and he was laughing and he said, David, because I get, I get stick. I know people want to, when they want to give me heat, there's a few bits and pieces. They say, well, you know, he's a businessman. He's not a photographer. He looks at the return on capital employed of his projects. You're dead right I do. You're dead right I'm going to look at the return on capital employed because in the very same way that Netflix do exactly the same thing. That doesn't, doesn't not mean that they're very good producers of original content. But if we're going to spend a year to date, we spent a million dollars filming, a million dollars on, I think, 11 different projects. Every morning, I'll get a sheet in descending order of the return on capital employed so far of those projects to somewhere we've not made a penny so far because obviously people haven't seen the content. Uh, so we do, I do look at it from uh, a perspective of what does it cost, both financially and emotionally. Tomorrow I start on my way going up to the Bering Straits between Russia and Alaska. I've got to fly on four planes and I end up on an island in the middle of nowhere with 100 people living in a cabin with um, uh, Inuit community um, miles from anywhere. It'll take me about two days to get there. And then I've got one guide and then we're out in minus 30 degrees. Would I rather spend two or three days on the beach in California? Maybe. <laughs> but, you know, I've kind of, I've made my bed, so I've got to sleep in it. Mm. Um. I wanted to dip into, uh, as we start to come full circle in our conversation, um, what I see is sort of a convergence of the, the different domains you've played in um, over the last 30 years, finance, technology, and photography in the form of these things called NFTs. Um, for those listening that are not deep into this, I'm sure you've seen it popping up all over the place, non-fungible tokens, which are effectively really complicated things, but they're effectively ways for somebody to create, to give ownership to a digital piece of art and have it authenticated, but also for the original creator, in your case, a photographer to say, I, I am also going to keep a continuing interest. So if this thing gets sold today for X dollars, you know, and it gets sold a hundred times over the next 10 years, every time it's resold, if it appreciates in value, you know, I can get 10% of whatever that upside is. It's this rapidly emerging world. I think there's a lot of confusion around it. Some people are extraordinarily excited about it, especially on the creator side. And some people are uh, mad haters. I'm curious, and, and this really, it ties together, you know, like your background in finance and analyzing what's really happening here. And your focus on the fact that you know, this is both a craft and a business. What's your take? It's early days for me in terms of my place on the learning curve. Uh, I've got, it's funny, the reason I'm going to Los Angeles in a couple of hours' time is all day tomorrow is to have meetings on it. And we've had, over the last three weeks, we've had um, a lot of inquiries. I don't think that there's any such thing as a sure thing. 
And that's my financial background telling me that. I was too much of a disciple of Warren Buffett to believe in the sure thing, the one-way bet, the no downside. So what would be wrong with me doing five of these in conjunction with some very creative people, potentially pocketing a couple of hundred thousand dollars? Um, and that would be something you didn't expect a few days ago. The risk to me is that people that have invested in my art, and I don't like the expression invest, people that have collected my art, because I don't think art should be about investing. You should buy work that you like, not with a view to ringing up Sotheby's in three or four month, uh, years' time. Because auction houses, as you know, they, they're, they're one of the biggest, highest margin game gigs in the world. And it might be fine if you've got a Banksy or a basket, but with my work, they're going to have to go up an awful lot for them to change your life after Sotheby's have taken their 31% from the bar and the seller. I just worry that, and I don't know the answer, but if this is a bubble and it bursts and someone's ended up losing 90% of their value in something that has my name attached to it, I can do without that because we haven't had that so far. So do I need to take that risk? The only thing I'd say against that is that Bitcoin, I believe, has credibility. Uh, and it has, as each week goes by, it has more credibility because of some of the parties that have afforded it credibility, whether that be Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs have been more responsible for the rise of Bitcoin than I think people recognize. And then you get very famous American investors, like really credible people that you would hang on their every word, like Paul Tudor Jones, advocating that people should have 5% of their net worth in cryptocurrency. I would never play poker against Paul Tudor Jones. I would never really play anything against him because he's far brighter than me by a bit long way. I might be marginally better with a camera, I don't know, but he's far brighter than me. And those people that have supported Bitcoin and made a lot of money, factions of them will be supportive of this trend in the art world. And I therefore, I don't think it's going to burst imminently. But that still doesn't mean that I necessarily want to get involved. What I'm fascinated by is the creative process. Some creative guys have taken some of my pictures and turned it into a multimedia digital product. And I'm blown away by their creativity. So as a platform by people can show how talented they are, Here's another platform, but I'm going to, I'm Scottish. I'm, I'm, there's a rumor that Scots people are tight. We're not, we're the most generous people in the world, provided, provided we win at something. Um, but, um, I think we're, 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 we're prudent and I, I'm going to, I'm not going to jump in there, but I'm watching it like you are and I'm fascinated and, um, 
first thing you said is the idea that the artist can continue to benefit. That's an interesting proposition. I think we'll watch this space, but I'm not going to be doing anything tomorrow. Yeah, no, I, I think we probably have a similar take on it. And the most interesting part of this to me is the potential for artists to have a continuing upside in perpetuity um, in, in their work. I think it's there are a lot of fascinating conversations and opportunities that might grow out of that. But yeah, watch this space, I think, is where a lot of us are right now. Feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? To live a good life. Follow your passion. Uh, be kind. Try as much as possible to never be the smartest guy in the room. Always surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Be interested rather than interesting. I want to, I'm really so bored of myself. I really want to speak to people. I, I had the fortune of uh, spending some time with the Dallas Cowboy quarterback the other night. And uh, I'm so much more interested in his life. But boringly, he wanted to know a little bit about my life as well. But I, I love meeting fascinating people and talented people. And I'm a great believer that my heroes, there's very few of them that don't work hard. And every job, your job, my job, has heavy lifting. There's no job that doesn't have some heavy lifting involved. Look at, look at another quarterback, someone that I've worked with and collaborated with, Tom Brady. Look at what an extraordinary achievement in January this year. That didn't come without hard work. People can talk about his beautiful homes and his beautiful family. Well, he's still in the gym four hours a day. Mm. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that. So before you leave, if you loved this episode, Safe Bet, you will also really love the conversations that we had with Mark Mann, who is this tremendous photographer who has captured so many icons of film, stage, business, performance, and life in these stunning, hyper-close-up, hyper-vivid images. And his backstory is really funny and really tremendous and similar to David Yarrow. They're also both from Glasgow. The other person I think you would really enjoy is a conversation that we had with artist Peter Tunney, who actually started his career in the world of biotech and similar to Yarrow, ended up dropping into this world of art and then one day waking up and saying, I am an artist. And from that point forward, devoting himself wholeheartedly to it and building a stunning career in almost every form of media. His work kind of defies categorization. If you want to listen to either or both of those conversations, you can just click on the link in the show notes now and be sure to download those episodes so they're ready to click and play when you're on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode and then share Good Life Project with friends. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.